Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Well, we got to get down to business. This Ben Jarofsky show, Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 in District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it is Friday, April 10th. Of course, it's a podcast. You can be listening anytime. Headline on my beloved Bright One, home delivered as always, Bummer Summer. Yeah, man, looks like they may uh, cancel some of the summer festivals. That's what the headline alludes to. As uh, we do all the time on the Ben Jarofsky Show, I ask a distinguished guest of our bonus interview to introduce him or herself. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Thanks so much for having me on, Ben. My name is Dr. Howard Ehrman. I'm on the faculty of the University of Illinois at Chicago in the College of Medicine, and I was the Assistant Commissioner of Health here in Chicago from 1985 uh, to, to 1991. Howard Irwin has been like a regular on my show uh, since uh, we've been slapped in the head with uh, the pandemic here in the city of Chicago coming face-to-face with the reality that uh, – Things aren't well, to put it mildly. Howard, I think this is your fourth appearance on the show. And I want to say, just want to say, uh, a former colleague of yours will be on the show on Tuesday, been promoting it. Uh, Dr. Crystal Cash, an old friend of mine, will be coming on also to talk about the implications of the pandemic and what the city could be doing better and why we are where we are. And then we're going to reach out to a doctor in downstate Illinois, Dr. Pamela, a good friend of the show, a big advocate of Medicare for All. Uh, Howard, I'm going to ask you to weigh in on that eventually. Um, but let's start at the top. Your um, The first thing that you, you're on your list of to accomplish today was to talk about what's going on at the Cook County Jail. Uh, take it away, uh, Howard. Yeah, as probably most of you listeners know, uh, unfortunately, Cook County Jail is the number one hotspot in the United States uh, with now over 400 infections. Um, and, of course, the infections are primarily of African-Americans and Latinx uh, prisoners. Um, the in this case, the Cook County Board President, uh, Tony Preckwinkle, knew over a month ago and certainly knew all along that jails, um, detention centers, prisons, um, this is something, of course, for both the governor, Jay Pritzker, uh, and for her, are basically the incubation centers for any epidemic, pandemic, or outbreak. Um, and so... Two months ago, at the most six weeks ago, they should have released um, almost all the prisoners, certainly the ones who had never committed uh, a violent offense. And I think most of your listeners know that three out of four prisoners in Illinois and in the United States have never committed a violent offense. And to this day, to this very minute, 
there are new people who have been charged with crimes and have not been tried who are being put into Cook County Jail. Um, so this is a totally preventable situation. Um, there have been jail guards and prison guards um, in the dozens who have been infected um, all over Illinois, as in the rest of the United States. Um, some have died. Um, other people who work in prisons have died. Um, and also people who are taking care of prisoners, uh, whether they be social workers or doctors or nurses, physician assistants, are at tremendous risk. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the people were visited who were in the prisons. Uh, visitors, visitation is not allowed now, but it was going on. And we know that one out of four uh, cases of this disease is transmitted without any symptoms. So despite the fact that the uh, governor stands up every day in the press conference and says he's releasing prisoners, um, and so does uh, Sheriff Dart, uh, they didn't release enough prisoners, and they should release the rest now. Once they're tested, um, the ones who are basically infected need to be taken care of, um, either in total isolation or by taking them to a proper hospital. Now, in a perfect world, Howard, this has been a constant theme of, of, of our interviews. It's all the things that we didn't do as a society, as a civilization here in Chicago and Cook County and in Illinois. Uh, so if we could go back in time and just imagine we did things the right way, what would have been done uh, in terms of our prison population? Well, I, I don't want to go back in time because unfortunately this is still going on. So I think we have to talk about the prison population in relationship to the other potential hotspots where during this conversation of 30 to 45 minutes that you and I are having, people are being infected all over Chicago, Cook County, and the state of Illinois. So prisons are one of those places. Um, and what should have happened is, again, there should have been the mass release, at least of all the prisoners who never committed a violent crime, and even those who did commit a violent crime, if they were at the end of their sentence, they all should have been released early, either to their families or the state, and the county should have made provisions for them to go into safe housing with proper support, um, which is usually not the case in terms of what they do. Because this is not just among the prisoners. It's among the prisoners. It's among everyone who works in the prison. So that's the guards, the medical staff, et cetera. And it's in the communities. What are those communities? Who are in those communities? Well, it's mostly African-American, Latinx people who are in those communities not because they really commit more crimes, but because as the movie 13th clearly showed us um, that basically they are convicted of the same crimes at a much higher rate for a much longer sentence. Mm -hmm. So we know across the United States, including in Chicago, that African-Americans and Latinx have been disproportionately getting infected and dying at least five times more than whites. Um, and the situation in the jail is worse since the percentage of African-Americans and Latinx for the reasons we just talked about is far worse. Um, so now everybody in their family who may have come into contact with them before visitation was cut off, um, they themselves have gotten infected. They've spread it to other family members, to coworkers. So it's, you have to trace the dots here because the other part of this is the fact that in the United States and in Chicago, one third of white people can work at home. 
only 19% of African-Americans can work at home and only 16% of Latinx people can work at home. And the percentage of people who are African-American and Latinx who have to go to work in terms of taking public transit is much higher than it is for white people. So that's another incubator test tube, uh, buses and trains. We know that this virus stays on metal and plastic for several days. Um, so that's another place that people are spreading it. They may not be coughing and sneezing, but they certainly are breathing. And breathing itself can account for up to one out of four cases of this virus. All right, you mentioned the CTA, public transportation, and from time to time the train roars by my house, so the, the public transportation is still working in the city of Chicago. Talk about what should be done uh, to make the, the trains and buses safer. Well, I think if the United States government, the federal government, and the state government, and the county government, and the city government had made the provisions ahead of time, which they don't, um, basically... 90% of people working should not be working. They should be at home in a real quarantine. The public transit system would be shut down. This is exactly what happened in Wuhan for weeks, over a month. Um, and basically that's for the safety of everyone. Well, to do that, of course, you've got to have support systems set up, which the United States government and the government of Illinois and Chicago and Cook County don't. You have to be able to deliver food to people. Um, that's what happened in China. You know, you have to have them have access to medical care, which a lot of people still don't because we don't have Medicare for all. Um, so in lieu of that, if you're going to run the trains and the buses, then the next thing is for the governor. The governor of the state of Illinois, like all governors, has certain public health state emergency powers, which actually have been called police powers. Not that it's criminal police, but it's a, it's a civilian power. It's guaranteed by the Constitution that the states developed before the United States existed as a country and before the Constitution was written. A lot of people don't realize this. 95% of how this epidemic pandemic is being managed is really in the hands of the state. Um, and so Governor Pritzker stated publicly two days ago, um, he's you know definitely one of the more honest politicians, I'd say, at least sometimes, and he said, well, actually, the stockpile is not just a national stockpile. We have a state stockpile. Each health department is supposed to have a stockpile, and each hospital is supposed to have a stockpile of PPE and other equipment. Um, almost without exception, none of them had a stockpile that was close to being adequate for this pandemic, even though they all went through the now-famous crimson pandemic exercise uh, twice last year. So um, the, the the basic attacks on Trump are completely legitimate. Uh, no president has ever messed something up um, more than Trump has done um, in the last three months. Um, and But however, the state governors, um, the mayors, particularly of big cities, and county presidents like Tony Preckwinkle are also very guilty. So what should be happening right now is that the, the state governor and the mayor of Chicago and the county of Cook, among the three of them, they all have major health departments. Someone from the health department has to be in a little blow-up tent outside of every CTA headquarters where workers from the CTA go into work. And they have to screen them every time they start a shift. They have to take a temperature. 
They have to ask them symptoms. And at that point, they make a decision, which the CTA has nothing to do with because they have these state emergency powers. And that decision says very clearly, you're good to go, go through the door to work and get on a bus or a train, or you're sick or potentially sick, so go home. And the CTA has to pay you um, without taking away from your sick time or vacation time. However, it's not just the CTA, Ben. It's every business that is open. It's every grocery store that's open. It's every Amazon warehouse that's open in the entire state. Okay, that's what should be happening. Department of Health personnel should be inside and outside of every store, and they should be screening all of the employees. It should be a requirement that everyone wears masks. So I went shopping on Tuesday to four or five grocery stores, and I talked to the managers. I identified who I was, and I asked them, why aren't all your employees wearing masks? And they said, because Mayor Whitefoot hasn't told us to. And I called uh, Seattle. This was uh, Whole Foods. Um, and the other people said they called their national headquarters. And all of them said, if it's not a requirement, then it's an option. So maybe two out of three, three out of four employees had that. Um, it should be a requirement that everybody walking in as a customer has to have a mask. And if they don't have one, the store has got to provide a mask for them. If they want them to go in there and shop, they got to provide a mask for them. Everybody has to clean off the carts. Uh, more of that is happening now, but it's not consistent. So all of the rules that you've heard about in terms of what we have to do to be safe, these should not be options that the stores have. These should not be options for the hospitals. These should not be options for the CTA and other public agencies. And certainly they shouldn't be options for the prisons. This all should be legal rules that are strictly enforced with Department of Health personnel in every one of these places. And until that happens, thousands of people in the state are going to get infected unnecessarily. And some of them are going to die. Uh, Howard, you mentioned earlier you were talking distinguishing between essential and non-essential jobs. I think you said, and I was scribbling notes here, I can barely read my writing, that's a problem I have in my life, uh, but I think you said 90% of the jobs should be closed temporarily at the moment because they're non-essential. What would you deem as essential jobs that uh, should continue during this pandemic? Well, I want to be clear that 90% of the jobs would be would be shut down if the United States government or the state of Illinois or the county of Cook or the city of Chicago had support systems set up, um, particularly for people that are working class, particularly for people that make less than 300 or 350% of the poverty line. We don't have a system like that set up and no one has indicated they're really interested. However, um, there's all kinds of businesses that should not be open. I mean, when Mayor Lightfoot made the announcement a couple of days ago that she was putting a curfew on liquor stores at nine o'clock, um, I'd like to hear argument of why a liquor store is an essential service. Now, people, you know, have a right to buy alcohol uh, that to consume, but they can do that at grocery stores. Um, the role of liquor stores, particularly in neighborhoods of color, is incredibly negative. Almost all of them are not owned by people who live in the neighborhood. Um, and basically, uh, people hang around. It's a social thing that people do. Um, they infect each other. So um, I, I just thought it was one of the like, you know, most incredible things that, that the mayor can seriously get up there with a straight face and say, um, we're, we're putting a curfew at nine o'clock. But I guess she considers a liquor store to be an essential service. Um, I, I don't see how that's true. Um, and I think there's other places um, that, that are not essential. They, that would really have to be examined. 
um, by going around. For example, um, I, I don't think Best Buy is an essential service. Um, if people want to order something that may be critical for their work, like a computer, um, they can do that online, you know? Um, so there's lots of consumer places that are open that are not based on life and death issues, like a food store or pharmacy, you know, which at this point have to be open because of the way that things are set up. Uh, let's talk about some of the public services. I had a public, uh, uh, employees, a union rep on yesterday, we were talking about the dangers facing police officers, firefighters, uh, EMT uh, employees, etc. Uh, what what sort of safeguards should the city and state be doing to uh, guard uh, that to protect their well being? So I, I think you've probably heard um, that in New York alone, um, over fifty EMTs, um, almost as many police officers, and almost as many firemen have died um, in a situation that's far worse than Chicago. However, I think what the city has to do is, first of all, make sure that everyone has PPE that's renewed every time they need it. Um, anybody who's working in a hospital, and certainly this is true for EMP, uh, it could be very well true for firefighters and police, they have to have PPE that can change all the time. Unfortunately, um, the CDC um, has issued guidance um, saying it's okay, for example, to try to sterilize and reuse N95 masks. This is absolutely, absolutely untrue. Um, there is no evidence that it's ever been presented. In fact, we have lots of evidence to the contrary that you cannot reuse, sterilize, and reuse an N95 mask. And the, the gloves have to be disposable. Um, so I think all of these protections, you know, have to be with all of the public servants that we have in Chicago, all of the public workers, you know, to protect them and protect the people um, that they come into contact with. Of course, the other thing is basically if we decrease the number of infections and deaths, that in turn protects the first responders. Um, and we're not doing nearly enough to decrease the number of cases and deaths. So it puts first responders um, who in the city, most of whom are, are police and firemen, at an incredibly great risk. Uh, when you say uh, PPE, talk about what exactly that is and what kind of uh, equipment are you talking about? Yeah, PPE, PPE, I'm sorry I didn't define it. It stands for personal protection equipment. Um, so that basically includes um, what people have heard about, N95 masks and the problem of not having an N95 mask because there wasn't enough um, in storage um, at the federal, state, county, or city level um, and in some hospitals, is basically then people either have to reuse the N95 mask or they have to use a surgical mask or both. Um, it also includes something to protect your eyes that could be, depending on the situation of how serious the person is. Um, it could be a goggle, it could be a mask that's clear see-through, uh, it could be a gown, it could be like a hazmat suit, uh, it could be booties, uh, certain types of gloves, depending on the situation. You know, all those make up PPE, uh, personal protective equipment. Now, in the case of somebody like me who has a beard, I can't wear um, a N95 mask that's going to completely cover my face. So any of those people, and there's people without beards, um, whatever gender they identify with, who actually can't not be fit, fitted for an N95 mask, have to wear what's called a PAPR. Um, that's a powered air device. 
um, that takes the place of a mask. So it's actually an, a powered respirator because the N95 is a respirator. Um, so this is a situation that many hospitals, including some in Chicago, um, are not doing. And one reason they're not doing it is because within days, three weeks ago, of a totally dangerous um, guidance from the CDC that was issued. Um, and guidances from the CDC, none of them are legal, meaning it's not a requirement for the health department, unless that guidance comes from uh, the 10th Amendment, 10th Clause, the Commerce Clause of the Constitution, which is based on uh, quarantining of airports, ports, and putting federal troops on the border. Um, that That is strictly enforceable by federal law, but a guidance that says you could reuse N95 or you don't have to have N95 masks to take care of all COVID positive patients, which is what this guidance said. Um, and you don't have to put people into negatively pressured reverse isolation rooms, basically was incredibly dangerous. And the commissioner of the Department of Health of Chicago and the Illinois Department of Health state director turned around and said, this is okay. Um, that They never should have done that. What they should have said is that we are going to, well, this is, should have happened weeks ago, we're going to form our own infectious disease committee of experts who are scientists, doctors, nurses, other health workers, unions, to decide what's called an algorithm, a, a protocol with an algorithm to say, okay, if this patient is so sick, then this is the kind of PPE we have. Uh, if this patient is less sick than that. But that's not what this guidance said. The National Nurses United, which is the largest um, nursing union in this country with over 150,000 members, immediately held a press conference about this uh, and started a petition, which I would encourage everyone to sign. But everyone who's listening to this um, needs to call the mayor of the city of Chicago um, and the governor of the state of Illinois and um, uh, President Board President Preckwinkle and say, your three health departments have to reject this guidance because this guidance is infecting unnecessarily healthcare workers and patients. Um, and, this, and, and before this started, with potentially visitors are going home and infecting your own families if you're a healthcare worker. Howard, we talked about this the first time you came on the show, and I urge everybody to check out that. Uh, that was a very instructional uh, conversation that I had with uh, Howard. He took us through this A to Z uh, in the early stages. But listening to you go through the situation, pointing out where we are, why we are, where we are, it, it's so obvious. One more time, Howard, nobody really took this thing serious. Even when reports were coming out of China, nobody in this country, and I and I put everybody on that list. I mean, there were it it hadn't hit the virus hadn't hit the country really hard. Uh, it, there weren't obvious cases of it. It was easy to overlook it. So many people came on my show, and they weren't experts. They were just uh, political types. This is a political talk show, Howard. So it's generally we're having people come on talking politics, and I. I don't want to embarrass anybody, but oh, they would be, Ben, this is not that serious. And, you know, they, everybody was playing doctor for the moment. And I think it was just a case where a lot of a lot of people, including ordinary citizens, just didn't want to believe the worst. Well, I, well I, I, think the, I think the problem is, um, is that, first of all, and this relates to the Medicare for All, we have no national health system in the United States. We have a federal government. It is one of the weakest in the entire world. Um, and so 
so that's why what I just stated that the CDC for 95% of this has no legal authority over the states or the counties or the cities. Okay. However, we're in the third largest city in the United States with the largest medical school in the United States, the largest nursing school in the United States, one of the largest public health schools. We have lots of brains here in Chicago, including infectious disease experts who were involved in SARS-1, which is 2003, or H1N1, um, which, you know, was a swine flu in 2009, or Ebola in 2014. Um, so we have lots of people who have public health backgrounds like myself, academic backgrounds, whatever, who basically were saying, this, this is going to come and hit hard. You know, our airport, you know, 18 miles from downtown, depending on the day, is the busiest airport in the world or the United States with lots of international flights, including direct flights from China. And I want to make clear here that, you know, racism against the Chinese is a huge problem in this outbreak and epidemic and now pandemic. Um, so I'm just, you know, not like Trump saying it's the Chinese cause it. I'm just saying there's, there were, there's direct flights from China where people, you know, as far as we know, first got infected. Um, so people knew about this starting December 31st when it was first reported by the Chinese to the World Health Organization, the Chinese government. Um, and the problem we had, a lot of it had to do with improper, incorrect, ill-advised messaging, including from the commissioner of health of the city of Chicago and the mayor, who day after day until about three weeks ago kept telling people don't worry, we're not close to community spread. That never should have been stated from the get-go. What should have been stated was, is because we have almost no testing, we don't know how many cases of this disease we have, and we're going to start implementing social distancing two months ago, two months ago in February, maybe January, actually. That's what should have happened. But that's not what the message was from anybody across the country, including our own elected officials at the city, county, and state level. And that was irresponsible. It was irresponsible. Either they were not listening to the science, or they didn't believe the science, or somehow they just didn't understand what was going on. But that's the roles of the people in the health department, the academics, and other people. Now you're, now you're moving to one of my favorite topics the mixed messaging. We talk about this all the time on the show. By the way, to, the, to that list, I think they just didn't want to believe it. That's a whole other story. I think I use the analogy all the time. I said it to you when you were first on the show. It reminds me of the movie Jaws, where the, the, the leaders of the town didn't want to hurt the tourist trade by admit, acknowledging there was a, a shark attacking swimmers. And that's a relative... So, so let's... Yeah. I, yeah, I, that, let's that's, I think let's that's a second. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's a matter of not wanting. Here's, here's what I agree with you. You know why they don't want to? So let's talk about the difference between what Governor Prisker said yesterday, which I thought was a pretty responsible statement. He said, we better probably better not plan on any summer festivals. And what did the mayor of the city of Chicago say today? She said, it's too early to tell, even in terms of a blues festival at the beginning of June. Mm -hmm. so, so I think the thing is, what it is, is that I understand if I were mayor of the city of Chicago, well, I'd be sweating up a storm about like how much money the city's losing, okay, from all kinds of economic activity. I can understand that, okay? But this is way, way, way past that. <laughs> you know, are we interested in saving the lives of people? 
to get uh, you know in front of the cameras and to say I'm ordering every every doctor and every person to put down the race of every patient who tests positive. That's that's good. And then I'm going to form a committee to look into this. Um, I think you've got to do more than that, whether you're the governor, the county president, or the mayor. So I understand this is a huge hit to the city of Chicago economically, but guess what? It's a much bigger hit to black and brown people losing their lives every minute or two. All right, and that uh, let's go back to the. That's a valid point. Uh, let's go back to the, uh, the the issue I was raising of mixed messaging. We just had a uh, uh, a election in Wisconsin on Tuesday. Uh, we had a primary in Illinois on March seventeenth. What's your opinion and position about holding elections in the middle of this? Well, obviously, the Illinois election should have never happened, uh, except virtually. Um, that was that was a, a, a big mistake by the governor um, and all the other elected officials who could have changed that. That never should have happened because I can guarantee you now thousands of people have been infected because that election was held on March 17th. Thousands, not hundreds, in the state of Illinois. Okay, obviously the one in Wisconsin should have never been, you know, held. Um, so I think even this far into the to the pandemic. You know, we have officials, um, both Democrats originally and now mostly Republicans, who are insisting that business as usual. You know, it's just <laughs> completely irresponsible. Um, and so, no, those things should have never happened. And I think that the key thing here is to really not, as Governor Pritzker said, I don't want to sound like I'm praising Governor Pritzker. I'm not. But what, what he said is we have to be, you know, other people have said from the WHO director general, we have to be extremely careful because as the weather gets nicer um, and the curve sometimes is going to flatten out, which is it's too early to say that that's happening, meaning the, the, the daily number of new cases, the daily number of new deaths looks like the last three days it may be starting to not keep going up as much. Um, then we have to be really careful. And that's why there's going to have to be stricter rules, actually. Uh, otherwise, we're going to get a higher rate of infections because the fact that this is transmitted by one out of five or one out of four people with no symptoms, just by breathing, just by eating, not by necessarily coughing or sneezing, then people are going to start getting too close to each other. People are going to start gathering in groups, uh, particularly as the weather gets nice outside. Um, and that's why we can't open businesses too soon. And this idea that somehow it maybe happened before April 30th, that's Looney Tunes. Um, we'll be lucky if it happens before the end of May in terms of the stay at home order being lifted. All right. Let's talk about the, the impact of the weather, the, the, the warmer weather on the virus. And somebody actually asked me that they said, next time you get Dr. Airman on the, uh, on the show, ask him this question. I'm going to do my best. Uh, Howard, to remember exactly the question. So here we go. Uh, the issue is, this has been put out in the media various times, that there's a hope that the virus uh, 
won't be spreading as much uh, once we get to warmer weather. It will kill the virus, the warmer weather. And the question was, if that's the case, why is a virus spreading even in warmer weather climates like Southern California or the Southwest of the United States? So ask Dr. Ehrman what the correlation is between uh, the, the virus and warmer weather. What's the connection? What's the relationship? Does warmer weather, in fact, uh, kill the virus? So that was the question someone wanted me to pose to you. Yeah, I think I think it's a little confusing. So we know the heat, you know, past a certain temperature kills the virus. It's very sensitive to heat. That doesn't mean that when the weather gets warmer that the virus is going to die off. Those are two very different things. Okay. Um, and so we know that with all communicable diseases, all infectious diseases, if they're spread, no matter how they're spread, particularly if they're spread through the air or in droplet form, then when people get together in closed spaces, it's spread more easily and frequently. For example, we, with the flu, the greatest increase of flu cases usually is within two weeks after Thanksgiving because more people get together in more, you know, in their family homes than any other holiday uh, in this country. That's in the United States. And it's also colder in most parts of the country, so people don't go outside as much. Now, what could happen, and we, I want to emphasize the word could, is, is the weather gets nicer and people go outside, keeping their social distance of six feet and not crowding in, in any groups at all, um, because people are not spending as much in, inside time, that may affect the transmission of the virus. However, the main thing here is that we... There's no evidence that that's true. There's no evidence anywhere in the world, including the global south, um, when it was still summer down there, including warm places like Florida and California. For example, all those people went to the beaches in Florida and South Carolina. It was, it was in the 80s last month. And, and there was all kinds of new cases that, that evolved from that, you know, because the governor stupidly did not close the beaches in those states. So I, I think what people are doing is that, you know, they don't, realize that it's the difference between, okay, if you got it in a Petri dish, the virus, and you expose the heat, yep, you'll kill it. But these things going around, like if you go in a sauna, and then you put a hairdryer up your nose or, you know, down your throat, then somehow that's going to kill the virus. That's not how it works. Okay. Uh, <laughs> just the thought about the, the that last thing with the dryer down your nose uh, threw me off a little bit. All right. Uh, and uh, so... Therefore, it's very it's it is important uh, to uh, to not to envision having like baseball games, crowded stadiums, and, and uh, festivals, etc. Just because it's warm out. So that was the the main point that you were driving home. Um, the other thing I wanted to discuss with you, Howard, is the issue of politics. This is a political show. We almost we talk exclusively about politics. And you're a very political person. People may not realize that, or they probably figured it out by now. I've known you for a long time. You have some deeply held uh, political beliefs. Uh, one of the things that I've found very disappointing with, uh, and I've been dealing with in my own way for this last week with Bernie Sanders dropping out of the race, is that somehow or other the Democratic Party, that's the party that I look to for these kind of democratic uh, values, has decided that it is not an electable thing to have a, a candidate, a nominee endorsing a national health care plan. I've been struggling with this one for a long time, Howard. 
uh, the fact that so many of my fellow Democrats, and I am basically a Democrat, um, think it's a good idea to go into this election against Donald Trump without a candidate who's advocating for national health care. I saw this in the debates, one debate after another, where a candidate, be it Amy Klobuchar or Pete Buttigieg or Joe Biden, and I go, there, was, there were the candidates who dropped out even before them, would uh, mock Bernie Sanders and say, you cannot win uh, because you're endorsing something that's too radical for America to accept. What's your thoughts about that? What's your reaction to that? Well, the first thing I want to say is um, for people who are interested in literally saving the lives of hundreds of people, you know, in the state of Illinois, in the city of Chicago, um, we have a network that's developing in Chicago called the People's Response. Um, and we're working with several organizations, um, and we're having a citywide meeting on this um, tomorrow at 11:30. Um, and we also have a national network that's developing um, where we meet uh, virtually, of course, at 7:30 Sunday. So what you can do is you can go to the Civic Lab. Uh, they're one of the partners in this uh, Civic Lab, C-I-V-I-C-L-A-B dot U-S. Um, and basically, you can find out the information on there. Uh, you can also email me directly at h-e-h-r-m-a-n at u-i-c dot e-d-u for more information if you like that. But here's my opinion on the really incredibly important topic you brought out. So polls that were done this week show that two out of three, 67% of all Americans across the political spectrum support single-payer Medicare for all, which, of course, was, you'd probably say, the major issue of many major issues that Bernie Sanders raised. Um, I think it was an incredible mistake for Senator Sanders to drop out of the race um, because of many reasons, but if we're going to focus on this, this is why. I, I think the other thing that really have to explain is that Medicare for all is quite different than a national health system or a national health care system. Understanding health and health care are not the same thing. A national health system is what Canada or, you know, my cousins who live in England have. They have a national health system. You know, they're, 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 it's, it's, it's quite different because Medicare for all does not deal in itself with the private pharmaceutical companies. Okay, it doesn't deal with the private laboratories, which have been a real problem in this COVID-19 virus. Uh, for example, Quest, the second biggest of the two, Quest and LabCorp, the two biggest, is still a week to 10 days behind in processing the tests. However, Medicare for All is still an important idea that everybody in the United States should have. By the way, my great-great-uncle, uh, Congressman A.J. Sabbath, actually wrote Medicare for All into the original Social Security Act, um, which Roosevelt took out. Um, and that was, you know, 86 years ago. So, so that's where we're at. And I think it was a mistake because of the fact that during this crisis where we still have, you know, 40 million people who are under, or 50 million people undershirt or don't have insurance, the question of being able to go to a doctor, a nurse practitioner, a physician assistant, a clinic, or to a hospital um, is absolutely critical if they need to go. 
And so that's making coronavirus worse. It's making the COVID-19 infection spread. And hundreds, thousands of people are going to die in the United States because we don't have Medicare for all. Um, it wouldn't solve the whole problem whatsoever, but it would at least be helpful. So I think he should have stayed in the race. Um, I think the fact that even in those states that he lost uh, to Joe Biden, that the vast majority of people supported um, Medicare for all, that in the South, in every state, the majority of people support Medicare for all. Um, almost, the, almost in some states, the majority of Republicans support Medicare for all. Uh, particularly the Republicans are over 65 and already have Medicare. So I think um, that was a serious mistake. Now, the fact that he's dropped out means that pressure should be put on Joe Biden to support Medicare for all. But I don't think he is. Um, I don't think the Clinton wing of the Democratic Party, which controls the Democratic National Committee, um, is going to support Medicare for all. Uh, and what they decide is what Joe Biden is going to do. Um, they're too tied in with the capitalist corporations, you know, and that's who they get big donations from, um, whether it's pharmaceutical companies, whether it's, you know, lab companies, whether, you know, whatever part of the medical industrial complex we're talking about. Um, so I, I would hope that he does that, but I wouldn't hold my breath. All right. Well, I will end it there. And I, I know this conversation will be continued. And I personally hope we can put some pressure on him. I, I'll, I'll end it by just saying this. I'm going to maintain a sliver of optimism and uh, think that uh, and hope that Joe Biden will further move to the left uh, because he realizes it's the only way he can get elected. Maybe that will uh, push him left. I'm not saying he's going to have a, a moment of illumination when he realizes that he's been wrong his entire life. Uh, but sometimes politicians uh, have been known to do the right things for various reasons having to do with their own political survival. Howard Ehrman is his name, Dr. Well, Howard Ehrman. Well, I hope, you, I, hope you're, I hope you're right. Thank you, thank you so much again. Yeah, Howard, uh, one more time, give them the information where they can get in touch with you. Uh, if they want to ask you any questions or join, uh, you know, follow some of your political activities. Yeah, so the people's response uh, to COVID-19 uh, is both a, both a local effort that's developing among different organizations and individuals in Chicago and a national effort. Uh, our meetings are 1130 tomorrow locally and 730 Sunday night. Uh, the best way is to either go to the civiclab.us and or email me at h. E H R M like mother, A like apple, M like never at uic.edu. Very good. That's Dr. Howard Urban. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody.